0: It really goes back to when you are eating your meat, say your vegetables too, where are they coming from? Do you know that farmer? Do you know their practices? That's that transparency piece, right? It's trusting the farmer and trusting that process.
1: You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. We want to put the microphone
2: in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the
1: designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hey mom, what have you been up to out at the farm? I know you've been doing some fun stuff yeah we've been outside
2: doing some natural plant dyeing i've had the fire pit going and doing some black walnut dyeing and some indigo and some bundle dyeing with the flowers and i had some friends over with their various projects it's just a
1: really fun fall activity it's really great so, what are you dying for? Are you going to be putting stuff in the store, or is there a particular reason? What are your friends dying for? Yes, I've got bandanas. I've got scarves. They're all
2: different, one of a kind. Can't wait to show them to everybody. Cool. So, keep an eye out on the
1: Lady Farmer Marketplace.
2: Yeah, and our friend Caitlin of Sun Gold Flowers is dying napkins for her sister's wedding coming up this weekend. She's doing some black
1: walnut dye
2: and they're beautiful.
1: She bought some vintage napkins and they're out there soaking at this very minute. Speaking of weddings, I went to a wedding this past weekend of a dear friend from school, Elizabeth, and part of her thing that she wanted for her wedding was as much as possible all the elements be locally sourced and have meaning and stories behind them so part of that included her wedding dress and i helped her source the fabric for her wedding dress which was custom made by a woman in asheville and it ended up being a beautiful hemp linen blend that we had left over from our lady farmer essential collection production days and yeah so for anyone who doesn't know we started lady farmer as a clothing line and the goal was to produce a sustainable and ethically sourced line of clothes that we would want to wear. And we still have a few pieces from that original production. They're available in our online marketplace if you haven't seen them yet. And the linen specifically used for Elizabeth's dress, it was a white linen for her wedding dress, but we don't have any of that left. We had a Demeter tunic that was made in like a white and then a gray. But we do have a few of the gray ones left. And that piece of clothing is probably my mom's favorite garment, right? Yeah. I was wearing it over the weekend
2: and I was out somewhere and somebody stopped me and said, gosh, that's the greatest piece there. What is that? You know? And I said, oh, our, our company made them. And she said, look at those pockets. It's true. It really is a wonderful piece of apparel and I wear it all the time and love it. And
1: hopefully someday we'll get to make more. Yeah. I know for a fact right now though, we just <laughs> have a couple left. I think we have like 2 or 3 left. So, if you're looking for the best fall tunic to wear with the exact right pockets for foraging and gathering things, that would be your the Demeter tunic. And she's in the online store, and while you're there, you can also click the upcoming events tab and check out what's coming up, which is our virtual slow living retreat. Sad we can't do it in person again this year, but we're really excited for the lineup this year online.
2: Yes, we're calling it Embracing Winter because it's happening just as the winter holiday season kicks in. It's the first weekend of the month. And, you know, that's the weekend when it seems like the whole world is getting out the glitter and lights and running to get their trees and all of that. And so we'll begin Friday night, December 3rd, with a gathering to get to know one another a little bit. And then on Saturday, we will.
1: Yeah, you tell them, Emma. On Saturday, we have three workshops lined up. We start the day with a yoga class, and then we'll have a little coffee chat with us, you and I, and we'll be answering questions. We might have a guest. That's kind of a fun time. Sort of feels like a little live podcast situation. And then we have these three awesome workshops. One is Intentional Design for Sustainable Living with Eva Cosmos Flores, who has been a guest on the podcast, if you haven't heard her episode. We have an embroidery class with Christy Johnson, who has also been a guest on the podcast. And then Chris and Shockey, our fermentation queen, teaching fermented gifts for the holidays. So three beautiful workshops all geared towards connecting with the season in an intentional way and also all of the recordings will be included this time so if you can't make it there at the time that it's happening that's okay you can watch it anytime so yeah we hope you will join us Yeah. So if you're looking for an alternative to the kickoff of the winter season that's not necessarily being stressed out about shopping and getting everything together, then we hope that you will join us for a slower, more earth connected way of honoring this seasonal shift. And we encourage you to join us.
2: And while we're talking about that, we want to remind you that members of our online community, the Almanac, get an awesome discount to the Slow Living Retreat as they do to all of our events as one of the numerous member benefits.
1: Yeah, and being a member of the Almanac also means that you support this podcast. So even if it's not something that might be your cup of tea to like get on there and like chat about slow living stuff, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, then being a member of the Almanac directly supports our efforts here to bring you a show every week. So we really appreciate all of the support thus far. We think that you'll get a ton out of it anyways. It's like the best kind of Patreon you give and receive. And so we welcome you. If you're not a member already, Please join us.
2: Yeah. So today we're speaking with Liz Riffle of Riffle Farm in Preston County, West Virginia. And this is a small bison farm where they raise grass-fed and finished animals.
1: Liz Riffle is a... U.S. Navy Nurse Corps veteran, and her husband, Jimmy, is currently still serving on active duty as a Navy Nurse Corps nurse practitioner. Jimmy was born and raised in Grafton, West Virginia, so in their own words, Jimmy and Liz are homegrown and proud to now serve this great nation by feeding it. I think this is not only
2: an incredibly informative episode, but it brings up some topics that I think are especially important to our message here on The Good Dirt.
1: We know that the issue of meat consumption is definitely something that can bring up a lot of controversy. People have a lot of strong opinions about it, as they should. It's a complicated topic. This is true. Something that, in our opinion, is not talked about enough
2: is that locally grown meat farmed according to the principles of regenerative agriculture, such as raising them in a natural environment and manage grazing. This is being increasingly demonstrated as a means to sequester carbon back into the soil, which means it is actually a way of mitigating climate change.
1: Yeah, so we'll often hear that eating no meat or eating less meat is better for the environment and it is true. We could all eat less meat or no factory farm meat. And that's in the same way that it's better for the environment to use less plastic or buy less stuff or use less electricity and all of those things. The difference here is that there is a way to eat meat that is not only much healthier for us as humans, but actually is climate beneficial. So it can actually help support the carbon cycle.
2: Yeah, so no matter what a person's chosen diet is, if it includes meat, We encourage everyone to know your source, become familiar with that farmer and the practices they follow, and getting that meat to you. We talk a lot about this in our conversation with Liz, and she can tell you firsthand about what it means to raise bison meat responsibly and use regenerative farming practices because this is what she does every day.
1: Yeah, so we're so excited to bring Liz to you of Riffle Farm in West Virginia, and we hope you enjoy
2: Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today, raising and producing bison meat. Yeah,
0: it's definitely a niche thing. So I guess first and foremost, so I'm an animal lover first, just through and through. We've always had animals and then I grew up with horses. So that's really my background originally. So I didn't grow up on a farm per se, but I had horses. Growing up, I competed. I competed throughout high school. And then even after college, when I was a nurse, I even did a lot of training and still took lessons and worked for a few different course rescues throughout the country, actually, and did lots of retraining for different breeds and stuff like that. So I love the big animals. And once I met my husband and we started talking about what we were going to do in retirement, because we were both active duty Navy nurses at the time. And he got in when he was 17. So retirement's just around the corner for him. He's about to turn 40 oh, and wow. that feels young, you know, to yeah. be in retirement. So we get to have like a whole, another career, which is really, really cool. That's awesome. And he was born and raised in West Virginia and really wanted to go back home to raise a family, which I totally get. That's awesome. His family's all there, lots of friends, things like that. And my big thing was, well, I wanted to have horses again. I wanted to live on a farm in the middle of nowhere, lots of land. I don't want to see anybody. <laughs> I don't want to have neighbors. West Virginia sounds like a great fit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it definitely is. Cause we're in the middle of nowhere. Let me tell you, but yeah, I was like, yeah, I'd like to have horses again. That would be really nice to have my own. And he's like, well, okay. So we get horses and we put up fencing and stuff. And he's like, you know, horses don't really make any money. It just, they cost a lot of money. And I was like, yeah, I know. He's like, what if we put something inside the fence that actually makes us a little bit money? And I was like, okay. He's like, well, like maybe cattle or something. And at the same time, when we were tossing around these ideas, we took a trip to Jackson, Wyoming, which is at the bottom of Yellowstone where the buffaloes still roam. And we love Jackson. We're big outdoor skiers. We've been many, many times. And when you're out there at all the restaurants, you can get a bison burger or a bison steak. And I was like, look, these people are definitely not going out into Yellowstone and shooting these animals and then selling them in the restaurant. Somebody's raising bison Mm -hmm. for commercial use. So we started asking some questions around town and there was a little meat shop in town. And we're like, all right, where are you guys getting all this elk and all this bison? He's like, yeah, people do raise these big exotic animals. And we're like, really? And we loved the meat. We loved bison. It's got a great flavor, super simple. Bison actually has less fatness than chicken. And since we're healthcare professionals, that's our background, right? It's actually the only red meat on a cardiac diet. And so we were like, this is awesome. This may be a great product to bring back to the West Virginia community a super healthy red meat staple. And that's kind of where the research began. And come to find out there's lots of other bison operations in the East. They're not just all out West. So but yeah, that was back in like 2014 when we got the idea and started doing lots of research from that perspective. So talking to folks, talking to ranchers, going to conferences and visiting bison farms.
1: <laughs> and where were you before you chose to transplant to West Virginia?
0: Yeah. So we were all over the country. So Jimmy and I met when we were active duty Navy nurses together. So we actually met in Bethesda maryland back in 2010 because we were both stationed there at what was the national naval medical center but is now walter reed so that was my first duty station but then we traveled out west we were stationed out in washington state for a little bit and i did a little bit of time in california and california which interestingly enough is factory cow country Yeah, not a good thing. (laughs) So we kind of have been coast to coast. And then once we got stationed back this direction in 2016, that's when we started making plans to open up a bison operation in West Virginia. And we started in 2017.
2: Well, you mentioned factory production there. So
0: tell us how you guys do that differently. Like most farmers, small farmers, you get to put your hands on each animal, which is really nice. And we like to work with the land instead of against it so stocking rates the amount of property that you have and we rotate the animals around so much like they would have done out west you know when they roam they do love to roam let me tell you we mimic the roaming we have smaller pastures to go back and forth but I don't do like strip grazing kind of like some of those cattle farmers do the bison just don't really do that and they don't appreciate just a single strand of electric. They'll go right oh, through it. Oh. <laughs> so much different than factory farming, as in our grass is green yeah. and you can barely smell any type of animal poop anywhere. They're just kind of roaming the land, different places. Pretty much every few days they're rotated around and just letting them be bison, you know, and we yeah. keep all of our animals together. It's calves all the way up to our breeder bull. The whole herd is together. And another reason why we chose to get into bison is because they're considered a non amenable species according to the USDA, which means there's very little regulation on them, which is super nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally in our benefit which is what allows us to actually field harvest the animals. Because once we started doing some research into the business of farming and livestock and things like that, I was horrified by where our meat actually comes from. And some of those factory farms and these animals who don't even see a blade of green grass their entire lives and then go to a slaughter facility and are processed and stunned. And it's just a really, really messy way to die. Honestly, it's really, it's not fair at all that this big, beautiful animal who is sustenance for us. There is a certain responsibility that I believe that we have to honorably raise them and then also honorably harvest or slaughter them. And so the big thing about bison is that I can field harvest my animals and still use them for commercial sale. So that's what we do. We just started doing all of our animals that way this year. And we actually have the state of West Virginia on board now. And the state inspector comes out to our farm and watches the animal be put down humanely in the pasture, in the morning, in the fog, nothing's really going on. The animal never knows. Mm. Literally, we walk out there, they're kind of curious, they look straight at us, and then that's it. Wow.
1: wow, Nothing
0: else. And it's super peaceful. And I feel like it's really what the animal deserves because it's yeah. not fair to stress them out at the very end. You know, people are kind of like, well, it's a really bad last day you know that last day really sucks yeah I feel like that's not fair that's still not fair so we're super excited to finally be able to really harvest all of our bison for commercial use and it's way different than what the factories do you know those big farms and these animals that are all in a bunch of pens together and just don't have a lot of room and our animals are out on green grass and they get to roam around pretty much like they naturally would in their environments
1: wow And who is your main customer? Is it restaurants or do you sell direct to people?
0: So we do, the majority of our sales are direct to consumer. I do do some restaurants and we do do some like smaller grocers in the area, you know, grocers who are really committed to that mentality of the farmer and knowing where all of their products come from and the humane treatment of the animals and just, you know, high nutrient dense food that's available. So we're kind of in and out of those different groceries actually all through West Virginia and into Virginia as well. Okay. And then restaurants, the same thing. It just kind of depends on the season. Do you
2: plant any particular kind of grasses or do they just eat what's there? And how many
0: acres do y'all have? Yeah. So we've got 64 acres and it kind of just depends on the time of year. We've got anywhere between 30 and 40 animals.
2: Was this land previously farmed before y'all had it or was it just open land or what's the history of the land and what? What's growing there? Is it native stuff or is it stuff left over from past agricultural projects?
0: Yeah, I'd say it's pretty much mostly native. Oh, great. The place that we're at right now has been a working farm since the early 90s. It's been a mix of cattle and sheep they've had up here. So when we purchased the place, there were already a couple barns and a beautiful automatic watering system throughout the entire property, which was so nice, especially... horses. (laughs) I remember hauling water all over the place. So not having to haul water is awesome. So yeah, so they still had livestock and the grass is really just what was here. And they've obviously cleared some of it, but I feel like it's just been honestly reseeded with the hay that is also local. So it's all local stuff. Even the weeds are yeah. <laughs> all local weeds. And it just keeps reseeding itself because we get our hay from down the road or maybe from an hour away. So, I mean, as far as what types of grasses they are, I have not selectively reseeded, but I do know what grows in our pastures, our orchard grass, crab grass, fescue. And then I have an abundance of different kinds of weeds and different stuff that do come out throughout the year that Sometimes we'll take down, um, but a lot of times I do let just grow because it kind of gives me an insight into what the land needs, what minerals they're potentially deficient in. And then sometimes I let it grow because we do get a really dry season and I'm at the top of an elevation. I'm actually at the top of a mountain. So we're at 2,200 feet in elevation and I'm at the very, very top. So when we stop getting water, we have to be very, very careful because all the water's down at the bottom and I would have to bring it back up. So in the dry season, I try and keep a nice cover of grasses and different kinds of weeds that come up too. They really shade that grass and that clover and protect them from the scorching of the sun. Yeah. And then we've let the bison do a really good job of reclaiming some of our silvo pasture. So we did, we've got lots of woods. That's what West Virginia is. It's lots of mountains and hills and woods. Um. And the bison actually really do really well in that area. We've fenced in a lot of the wooded areas and they get in there and clean up all the briars. And interestingly enough, bison are kind of like a mix between goats and deer. And I'll see some of these massive animals. One of my favorite females will go in there and especially in the spring, she'll eat all the little leaves off of the blackberry briar bushes, which kills them eventually. But they're just, they browse, (laughs) which was fascinating to me because I didn't realize how good they were with all kinds of different plants not just the grass they definitely browse on different trees and leaves and nuts and those blackberries but the nice thing has been because we get a lot of blackberry briars they've cleared out that space so then that underbrush is gone and then some of that grass can grow up around those trees, and so we have kind of a nice protective layer where there's some tree coverage, but there is some grass, um, and it's kind of a cool, shaded area for them to hang out in in the winter or in the summer. And you call that silvo pasture. Silvo pasture is the term that is used now. Yeah, I'm learning about it too. I, yeah. It's kind of new to me. It's
2: a permaculture thing. I've read about it and something I'd love to replicate around our place. We only have a few acres, but what I've noticed, yeah. and you know, the more I'm there and the more I get acquainted with the plants and the vegetation, there are so many invasives that pop up in those neglected areas and that goats and the, I didn't realize bison did this too, but the browsing animals are able to eat back that invasive stuff so that the native things can come back. And when the native things are able to come back, that means you're inviting the native wildlife, the native pollinators, you're feeding the soil with how it meant to be fed by what plants. And it's really important. It's really a, a wonderful concept. It really excites me. I'm like, maybe we could get a bison. probably not definitely
0: i know right do
1: you rent a bison i'm picturing like a truck like rent a bison (laughs) (laughs) the problem is that they don't stay in
0: fences really well so that's the problem but
1: (laughs) yeah oh yeah it's not i think you
2: can enclose the goats with a little electric fence and move it around Mm -hmm. and so that's why goats are so
0: useful in that in that capacity i'm learning about it too like this is all a huge learning curve for me because i did not grow up with any of this with all the farming stuff and it's fascinating it's fascinating to watch it's fascinating to watch what the animals can do for the land. And then we've made some huge mistakes along the way too. You know, I've been in the middle of a drought season and then I've fried my pasture because I've overgrazed it or we've mm-hmm. done too much in the wooded areas. It's fascinating. We're trying to work with mother nature, you know, and like make it all work together. Mm-hmm. And make it a diverse land mass, you know, that we're trying to cultivate here for both the animals benefit. And like you're saying the local flora and fauna and bring back those birds and the bees and the butterflies. And it's been really, really interesting to watch. And it's almost like I'm a doer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I want to, I want to do things and really like, Sitting back and watching has been a huge learning curve for me. I feel like that's what Mother Nature needs. Mother Nature is trying to teach you something, and you have to be open to that. I'm used to being very, very proactive with things. And so, sitting back and doing a lot of the looking and listening has been really, really tough. But I feel like there's so much to learn from that aspect. And it's, like I said, it's fascinating, really. Like, this is all so new to me. And every day I am like, Wow, that's very cool.
2: So one of the main principles of permaculture is observation, because exactly what you were just saying. We sit back and we watch what happens, and then we're sort of given clues as to what we need to do next, rather than some program that tells us, now you do this, now you do that. It's more of a reciprocation, and it's the whole concept, working with it, instead of trying to conquer the weeds or conquer the water problems and everything. There are natural ways for this to happen, and that's what permaculture is all about. And also... You're really on the leading edge of this sort of managed grazing and meat production. It has been documented as something that helps reverse climate change. It helps put the carbon back into the soil because when you have all the systems working as they are supposed to, you're healing the landscape and not extracting from it. Exactly. As the factory production and the factory farming methods have done now for so many decades. So it's a really, really common perception out there and assumption that meat production is a big factor in climate change. And even as recently as this month, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with their report this year, and one of their recommendations for mitigating climate change was that everybody needs to eat less meat. And that really bothers me because I feel like it's not based on the most recent developments and science in regenerative agriculture? That like they're not taking all that into well, account. I would say it's
1: true, but the problem with it is then people go running to the meet alternatives. Mm-hmm that are not necessarily better for the environment. Correct. Like, I think it's okay for people to eat less meat, but that doesn't mean beyond burger. Correct. I wish that these powers that be, the ones that have the big voices, could
2: distinguish eat less factory farmed Mm -hmm. meat. In fact, don't eat any. Go find these small producers that are doing this and helping to mitigate the harmful effects of the ways of factory farming. Because people make an assumption that all meat is bad, but the meat you're producing is actually helping things. Yeah. And, you know, we need to spread the word. I want to spread the word about that. And you know, people need to have the freedom to eat in any way they want, you know, vegetarian, vegan, whatever. But however you eat, you need to be informed about the truth of these practices. Right. And yes, the factory farming, the CAFOs and all of that are contributing to climate change. But there are other ways.
1: So what are your feelings about that? And how do you explain to someone who isn't raising meat bad for the environment?
0: So raising meat being bad for the environment, if you do it in a Harmful way, definitely. But that's for anything. I mean, you can do just about anything in a harmful way that can harm the environment, right? So raising meat is no different than that. If you are actually pulling more carbon in back into the soils with your regenerative farming methods, then it actually is much better for the environment because I only have a handful of animals, but I'm actually cultivating the earth in a way that is going to pull that carbon back into the system in an appropriate manner versus most factory farms that have way too many animals on a very, very small space. And then they make that space like a dust bowl. So then yes, it's just a bunch of carbon going out into the world that then doesn't have its own cycle to come back. But I have my own cycle. Yes, I'm producing some carbon, but I'm also, I would venture to say, pulling more of it back into the soils. They don't have the data on that. And there are plenty of organizations right now that are really working on the science behind that. One of them is like the Savory Institute. It's really working on getting the math behind that to show the public that, yes, we are producing meat but we have our own cycles in these farms that's actually pulling more carbon back into the system than what we are generating. So it actually is super helpful. And that's where I would go with folks when they ask me that question is that I'm creating my own cycle. Yes, I do create my own carbon, but I'm actually collecting my own carbon as well.
2: That's a great answer. Do you ever have those discussions with your customers? Did they walk up to your booth at the farmer's market and say, I don't eat meat anymore because of the methane gas? Or Do they say that?
0: Occasionally. So to be honest with you, most of the people who come up to my booth and say, like, I don't eat meat anymore it's because of the humane piece of it. Not necessarily they don't eat meat because of the the carbon emissions and things like that. I do have conversations about that on occasion, but most of the time it's with somebody who's a vegetarian and they're like, I don't really eat meat. But over the past few years, I've actually had customers where I've talked to them And then they come to me and have some of their first meat. They're like, you know what? I would really like to get back into meat after learning that meat can actually be a humane, sustainable choice you know, maybe I'll get back into that, especially because a lot of people find that you've got to be very, very careful as a vegetarian to upkeep your health and the right nutrients and vitamins without having meat. Like we're omnivores. That's what we are. And so if you really cut out a huge piece yeah. of that diet, you have to be very careful with how you get your nutrients because you may be depleting a lot of those nutrients in your body, but you're not going to know it for years down the road. So I actually, yeah, have had quite a few customers come to me and be like, hey, I want to get back into into eating meat. And it sounds like I can do that with you in a humane, sustainable manner, which is great. I love those conversations because I was this close to becoming a vegetarian too. I was like, oh my gosh, I like this factory farming thing. Like, I don't think I can do this to animals, but you know, I'm a meat eater. And I was like, you know what? I just need to be the answer to the problem. I need to be a part of the solution. So we raise our own meat now and yeah. humanely harvest them.
1: And I want to talk a little bit about that too. It sounds like you've an amazing operation. Is it just you and your husband? Do you have any help? Do you have kids? Like tell us about like your personal side of it.
0: It's a very, very small operation right now. So it is me, my husband and my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law is on the farm 24 seven because I also have a 19 month old and little kids are wild. (laughs) So, and I'm fortunate enough to have my mother around as well. And she's wonderful and helps me out with my son often. And it's very, very helpful because there are sometimes too hot outside or it's too cold or we're, you know, we're working the animals and it's too dangerous for him to be around. So there are definitely times where he needs to be watched so but like this morning we went out for a nice beautiful pasture walk together with all the dogs and that was perfect he does all that type of stuff with us yeah but sometimes he just can't he can't be out there with us so it's nice to have some extra family and some extra hands around so We do pretty much run the operation, just me, my husband, and my brother-in-law. So it's just the three of us running animals and taking care of the spaces and then doing the farmer's markets on top of that. It's a full-time job for all of us. Let me tell you, it's my husband's still off duty. So he's not, he's actually not around as much as I would love to have him be, but he retires in two years. And then this is our retirement plan, right? So it'll be nice to have him a little bit more full-time, but typical day the nice thing about bison is that they're a little more hands-off which was another reason why we got into them too we kind of just let them do their own thing most days and just open up gates between pastures occasionally we'll have to run them through our handling system just for vetting and vaccinations and things like that or tagging you know if i got new calves and stuff like that but most days it is just making sure that they're all in the pasture for one (laughs) so pasture walks i like to start my day off with a nice pasture walk so making sure that they are all in the pasture and then looking at how the grasses are doing in all the other pastures um, making sure our water sources are clean and working because like I said we're at that time of year right now where it's not a drought so I gotta make sure I have enough water these animals drink about 300 to 400 gallons a day age I mean like as a herd oh just Making sure everything's all settled. And then some days we'll make trips into town if I have to drop off meat to a grocery store or to a restaurant. Now it's hay season and we don't do our own hay. We just purchase it. Just cut some local folks who have some pastures that they want to kind of keep down. And so we got to go get that hay, which is a lot. So we actually end up feeding about It ends up being about 360 round bales a year. I think it ends up being like 80 loads. When we did the math, it's 80 loads of hay that I have to bring up the driveway throughout the summertime. Wow. (laughs) So most days we have to go get hay and stack it. And then at some point we will open up a gate and let those animals go into another pasture, but a little more hands off you know, I make sure animals have minerals, where they're going the next day, that the water is good to go. And that they're all there kind of, you know, our morning and evening checks. And then besides that, we're just making sure that we can keep up with the hay and bring stuff to the markets. We do farmers markets on the weekend. And
1: how many times a year do you harvest?
0: So we've actually been harvesting about two animals a month. So it fluctuates, you know. Some months we don't do it. Okay. It kind of just depends on the need. But that's a lot of animals. Like we are on track to do eighteen animals this year. We only did ten last year, so it's almost double this year, mm-hmm. which is great because the desire is there. You know, people really want good, clean, healthy meat. Yeah. And once you have a bison steak, there's no going back. You're gonna keep owning a bison steak.
1: <laughs> yeah. And do you need to take it somewhere to get processed?
0: We do. Yeah. So I work with our local butcher who comes up and is also okay. a sharpshooter. So he comes up and puts the animal down and then takes the carcass back to his shop so that it hangs. It does have to age for about 10 days. And then he cuts it and packages it so that I can sell it in individual stakes and things like that. We've heard that
2: it's kind of hard to find a good processor these days because more and more people are wanting to do this in a sort of a way that's an alternative to the usual system. And that's not enough processors. Is that true in your area?
0: Yeah. The processing piece yeah, is they're really, in demand. really tough. There's definitely a bottleneck in there because there's very few people who want to get to that side of the business because part of that side of the business is just putting animals down all day long. That's kind of tough yeah. and it's highly regulated highly regulated when you try and do it commercially. So a lot of paperwork and that's not why a lot of people get into a small business. So they try and get into a small business to limit that type of stuff and to limit the government regulations on them and things like that. And so when you get into the meatpacking business, you dive, you know, headfirst into a lot of that stuff, which is really, really tough. We're trying to work on that locally in regards to deregulating some of those systems. And then the other thing I do that I started last year, I started a sister company called the Honest Carnivore, which is a creative way for farmers like myself to sell their meat commercially without any of the regulatory stuff. So one way, one thing that we do, which I really love because it's like the true transparency piece is we do butchery classes. So I can take animals from a farmer and offer them as a class where the participants technically purchase the animal and then I just teach them how to process it themselves and they bring it all back home with them. Wow. So that's really a fun way. And then the other side of that story too, is that farmers like me can sell their animals in quarters, in quarter shares. And they end up, cause a lot of people don't have the freezer space for a quarter cow, right? That's a, that's a lot of meat, you know, a quarter pig, that's a little bit different. Um, or you could buy a whole lamb because the lamb's not very big, but a quarter cow starts to get pretty big on the freezer space. What farmers can do is they can sell it by the quarter share, and then they technically store it for the customer as long as the packaging is labeled with that cow's number, right? Okay. So for example, you two ladies purchased a quarter share of cow number 449, but you don't have the freezer space for all it. That, then that's fine. So each month I just bring you your box of cow number four, four, nine. So that cow will last you roughly four to six months and you get a 30 to 50 pound package every month. And that's your beef for the month. And you don't have to worry about storing it. That's so much beef for the month. Yeah. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) So, but yeah, but you don't have to worry about storing it. And the farmer gets the option to field harvest their animal, which helps a little bit with the bottlenecking. I mean, somebody still has to cut up that animal but the nice thing is, is that yeah. there are a certain number of inspected facilities and there then there are a certain number of custom facilities because a lot of people get into the custom facilities because there's not that paperwork, but they have the space where they can still package all of your steaks and stuff like that. So you can field harvest your cow and still have it packaged in a custom processor and still sell it commercially. So there are loopholes there. We as farmers just need to be creative with using those loopholes to our advantage. And that's kind of what I've tried to kind of get into and help other farmers do that. I'm lucky because I have bison and that's my loophole. is because they're an exotic species. But there are loopholes there for lots of other farmers and their meat and really any kind of meat. And so the Honest
1: Carnivore, the business, is helping farmers figure that out or the delivery?
0: What is the business of it? It's helping farmers figure that out. And we do classes. We do the butchery classes. And then I kind of show farmers, hey, here are your loopholes. This is what you can do in your space.
1: That's so cool. And just to play devil's advocate for a second, because I would imagine that regulations on meat processing is mostly a good thing for lots of reasons yeah right and so when we talk about deregulating and everything that can sound a little bit jarring to people like we're just there's e coli all over the place so
0: can we talk a little (laughs) bit about for
1: any listeners that might be thinking like oh like i probably
0: want my meat regulated can we talk a little about why sure of course so the regulation piece Is a lot of the government regulations come or stem from that factory farming perspective, where there are hundreds of cows going through, if not thousands of cows going through a facility in a week. And a cow, that's a lot of meat on a cow, right? And so if the meat on one cow is tainted, it has the potential to make a lot of people sick. So, because it goes to a lot of different stores potentially. So that's where the regulation piece comes. And they wanna make darn sure that animals that are that big cannot make that many people sick, right? That's why it's interesting because the chicken industry, the poultry industry is already has less regulation because a lot of people can do that on their own farm, which a lot of people don't know. They can do up to like 20,000 birds. Do you know how many 20,000 birds is? Have you ever seen 20,000 birds? That's a lot of birds with like zero regulation. (laughs) So like, wow, farmer Smith down the road, if they do chickens, they can sell all that commercially up to 20,000 of them. Because if you get a bird and it's tainted, it just makes your family sick and not all of the families in your area sick. Okay, there you go. So those are your inside piece They're into the meat business, (laughs) which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Yeah. But regardless, so the industry regulations are made for processors that do hundreds of thousands of animals in a week. And that is not how those small processors operate. They may do hundreds, maybe thousands of animals in like half of a year. Okay. As far as the amount of hands that touch that meat and the amount of sanitation compared to the amount of sanitation that needs to happen in a large meatpacking facility are completely different. And I'm always pretty much always a proponent for less is more, you know, less hands, less packaging, less knives, less people all lend itself to less opportunity for a spread for an infection. It just, there's not as many animals and there's not as many hands and there's not as many people coming through those facilities. So it already lends itself to an opportunity for there to not be as much contamination piece. Mm -hmm. And it really goes back to when you are eating your meat. And I'd say your vegetables too. Where are they coming from? Do you know that farmer? Do you know their practices? Do you know the facility you're getting that meat from? Have you ever been into a meat packing facility? Because there's some of them you ain't going to want to buy meat from. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know that, that's that transparency piece, right? It's trusting the farmer and trusting that process. I can go through the system and know where that cow or that chicken is coming from because I know the processor and I know the farmer. And I have switched places where I get even my meat from locally, because there are some places I think do a better job than others, right? That's part of the process. And as a consumer, it's part of being an informed consumer. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of us are super busy these days and don't have a whole lot of time to think about that. But I feel like if you just stop for a minute and take the time to recognize where your food's coming from and map out where that came from. Yeah. I know this farmer. I've been to this farm. I visit this place. It's a clean place. I know this packaging facility, potentially even, you know, that family, it's a clean facility. They've got a clean store. All those things lend themselves to trust in that system. And I feel like we kind of need to go back to that. And that's what I would encourage more folks to do is Take that extra little time that it's going to take to do that research. And then once you do that research, great, awesome. Or ask a friend, who do they trust, right? If you're new into the system, where do they get their meat from? Which farmer do they trust? Because just like you go out and you buy a car, you go out and you buy clothes, right? You ladies with all your linens and stuff like that. Like There are certain places you would get stuff from and there are certain places you wouldn't. And it's the same exact thing for meat, And it's having those conversations and building that trust and that relationship in regards to instead of regulations, I don't want you to regulate me. I want to have a conversation with a farmer and I want to make my own decision in regards to this is where I want to get my meat from because I trust them and that's what it comes down to. Regulations are really good when there's really big business and a lot of inputs and outputs, but for the small farmer and for local food, I feel like it makes things messy.
2: Yeah, and it's also puts viable business out of reach for a lot of farmers because those Mm -hmm. things, you know, take red tape and a lot of administration and all those things and circling back a minute to the confidence and the trust and you were talking about the conversations you had with some of your customers at the farmers markets and so forth. Do you think certification come in the same category as regulations and being just a bunch of hoops? Because I was thinking, what if there was a climate beneficial certification? I've, I've seen a
1: regenerative label or yeah.
2: things that tell the customer right off the bat, oh, this isn't regular meat I'm going to buy. This has benefiting awesome. the climate. Right. And it's benefiting the environment and it's humanely raised. And all those considerations, are those things out there? Have they not happened yet? What do you know about that?
0: Yeah, they're definitely out there. And I think there is a time and place for certifications well. And that's something that is not mandatory for farmers. It's something you choose to do, which is kind of nice. Yeah. But again, your certification still requires a little bit of research on the consumer side. Okay. Cause what are you really getting out of that certification? Right. right? So one of the biggest things is the organic label, right? Do you really know what you're getting out of that organic label? Most people don't. And it's a big label and it's really messy, right? And it looks really good and it sounds really good. And there are some really wonderful aspects of organic. Don't get me wrong. But I guarantee most consumers, it's not exactly what you're thinking it is. (laughs) So that's that research piece. There are Whole Foods, for one, is a great organization that tries to bring you good, clean, regenerative, humane products conveniently, right? So they have their own global animal partnership certification, which we've played around with as well, and may potentially be certified with them here shortly. But they try and do those those types of products and bring them to the consumer just down the street, basically, you know, in, in any really big metropolitan area, which is wonderful. They do a really, really great job with that certification, but it's still not the end-all be-all. And then there's also just Humane Certified, and then there's American Grass-Fed, and the Savory Institute does their own regenerative certification and stuff like that. So there's all kinds of labels that you could potentially put on your meats and vegetables grains really anything you grow off the farm so they're out there but it still requires the consumer to do a little bit of research in regards to what they're really looking for out of their products are they looking for humane are they looking for regenerative are they looking for everything (laughs) and what level is that so a prime example like what whole foods does that gap certification the global animal partnership there's levels to it Right. So, like we would be as bison, we would be level five, which is the highest level because our animals are humanely field harvested. They don't actually ever go to a slaughter facility. But, like, level three, is still humane, but it's at the slaughter facility. You know, so there's a research piece to that. Yeah, and who would know about that? The levels thing. Uh, yeah, it's tough. It's really, really tough. It's super confusing for oh. the consumer. But the market is making a killing off of some of this, right? Because they're slapping these labels on a lot of these products that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. But it's making it look awfully fancy and makes people feel so good about the products that they're purchasing. And at the end of the day, there's really no substitute. <laughs> For keeping it simple and knowing where your food comes from and knowing your farmer. That is so true. And we talk about this from time
2: to time on here that the average consumer is so focused on the word organic. And I'm so glad you brought this up because the organic certification, the USDA
1: certification is a very strict set of criteria and factors. It's strict, but there's also things in there that you wouldn't I think there's plenty yeah. of chemicals in organic. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. If you Google it, you know, it just takes you 30 seconds to get it up and to see exactly what that means. And just as you said, a lot of people might be surprised to see that, yeah, chemicals are allowed. The organic chemicals, that doesn't mean that they're all good for you or these are things that are not synthetic. That's what organic means. It's it's grown without synthetics. And also the labeling, there's many different levels of labeling for organic And you can just go on and read what they are and what what exactly that means. And it might mean only a certain percentage of the ingredients in there are raised organically, but the rest are not. So what are those? So you you do, you have to be really tuned in and go look. It doesn't take a ton of time. A great
1: example of this, I think, is actually the gluten-free label, because I've noticed in the past 10 years, everything now has a gluten-free label on it, even things that should not ever be in question that they would have gluten in them like right. a thing of dried blueberries or you know like something that's how would yeah. there ever be gluten in this and i like to think about wow that gluten free certification company is making a lot of money i think that's all it is mm-hmm. because you pay yeah. to have these certifications and it's marketing at the end of the day all of these certifications are marketing great if it helps mm-hmm. you move your product especially if it's amazing products like yours But we see that gluten-free label, and all it does is make us feel better as a consumer for some reason, and we Mm. buy it. And then the gluten-free label company, whoever that is, has all of this data saying people buy gluten-free label bags way more than they don't. And then they go around to all of these companies, and they say, this is why you should get your gluten-free label. Because (laughs) I think about that a lot because it kind of doesn't mean anything except probably – An increase in sales. Yeah. To your point, and this is worth saying so much, nothing
2: replaces knowing where your food came from and having a relationship with the grower, with the producer, and having conversations with them about what they do, what their practices are, what their inputs are, and their ways to do this. You don't want to, we've said this before, you don't want to march up to the farmer at the farmer's market and say, so, you know, what do you put on your stuff. It's not like that. It's just getting into a reciprocal thing where they are sharing their knowledge and practices with you and you are asking honest questions that are gonna help you be informed as to what you actually want to buy and eat and feed your family. We
1: had a podcast guest recently say that a really good way to approach this with your farmer is to walk up to the stand of the market and say How's your season going? Ah, yes. I just
0: listened to that podcast. Yeah. I was like, that's genius.
1: Yeah. Yeah." It's just like, be a human about it. Like, how is it? How's it going? (laughs) And like, they'll tell you. Nobody
0: wants to be interrogated, right? But you do want to know... You want the farmer to feel open to discuss that with them. And that's, that's what you want to do. You want to have a conversation, right? That's the opening for a conversation. Exactly. Right? I, I totally love that. Yeah, I really do. We have decided to rely on labels instead of relationships. And that's, yeah. that's a tough part in our oh. really fast paced world today. We're just looking at the yes. labels and we're hoping yeah. that the label is telling us the truth. And then now, unfortunately, a lot more of those labels are becoming more and more watered down as well because it is, it's big money. It's big marketing money. So, so the end of the day, you just have to take responsibility for you, yourself and your family and where your food's coming from. So, but I get it. I'm a busy mom too. And I do a lot of traveling and you can't always eat great, wonderful food. Like it just is what it is. And there's a time and a place for a cupcake and occasionally, you know, a French fry. (laughs) <laughs>
1: like yeah <laughs> I
0: get it I get it I try and do eighty twenty. 20 like that's my rule in my head I use 80 percent of the time I am like good clean fair food I know where it comes from mm-hmm. but occasionally I go out with a bunch of girlfriends and we go to a restaurant and I don't know where their meat came from right like what do you do yeah, like right. you can't you can't sit there and ask the, the waiter all the time like well where did that meat come from <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I do <laughs> love the restaurants where I can do that there are some Where they're like, oh yeah, Yeah. you know, we get our meat from down the road or wherever, and I love that, I love local small restaurants. But in the middle of New York City, you're probably going to go to some beautiful Italian restaurant, and they have no idea where they got their lamb from. So that is what it is. That society these days, I just feel like if the majority of us can make a few extra strides in that direction to understand and know where their food comes from, I think it'd be a whole different world.
2: Yeah. I remember an interaction I had with a customer that was asking questions about a product it was a textile thing, and they asked me if it was certified organic, and it was not. It was better than organic, actually, because yeah. we knew where it came from. And I was trying to explain this, but this person had a hard time letting go that it did not have that distinction on it. So I think it's helpful to tell people that these things are pretty nuanced. So just mm-hmm. be open. And bottom line is just try to follow the sources to the best extent that you can. And if you can't, if you hit a wall on where it comes from, then it probably want to look in another direction. If you have no idea where this came from or its story, then go somewhere where you can. Yeah.
1: Do you think that you would ever, or do you already uh, expand into
0: like shipping? all over or are you just local markets we just do local markets right now so shipping's a tough one because for one shipping got more expensive over the past year or so yeah it's very expensive to ship stuff and then when you ship perishable items you have to ship them either overnight or a second day and it usually has to be on ice or dry ice and dry ice is uh, considered a hazardous material so that costs more to ship so i played around with it a little bit and packing packing <laughs> i feel like you almost need like a whole nother staff you know, load to do packaging. Yes. So it's (laughs) expensive and exactly. And I tried to ship meat to my dad up in Massachusetts multiple times and it was going to cost me $192 to ship meat overnight to Massachusetts, like 10 pounds of meat. And I was like, that's not what, like, that's not worth it. Some of these companies do a beautiful job. There are some bison ranches that do a great job and they do ship nationally. And I really love what they do out there. There are a few of them who actually humanely field harvest all of their meat and they can ship it to you. And they already do a beautiful job doing that. And I have no desire to compete with them on that level. That's not my market. Yeah. To be honest with you,
1: they have that market covered and that's great. Yeah. Why do you think that's easier for, is it because is it a scale thing? If you're doing enough yeah. volume, you can make it work. Yes. Okay.
0: That's exactly what it is. It's a scale thing.
1: Our experience with ordering mail order meat is, you know,
2: you invest money in this beautiful, clean, wonderfully sourced meat, and it arrives at your doorstep in a
0: giant styrofoam container. That's depressing. <laughs> yeah, That's the other thing too. It's like you tout all of these great things that you do, but then when you have packaging material that I don't know, I mean, part of the whole sustainable living thing and sustainable meat products is not getting products from New Zealand or products from California. Yeah. Like we're on the East coast, you know, like just stop. Right. That takes a lot of man hours and a lot of trucking hours and talk about your carbon footprint at that point right yeah if you're purchasing meat from out west and you live on the east coast that's a tough conversation to have well yeah that's a really really tough one
2: hopefully it's growing like people like you are offering more local options and again when we always say this you can't check all the boxes if you really want to eat clean meat and the only place you can get it is to have it shipped in and it arrives in a styrofoam container okay you know it doesn't mean you have failed it just means that look this is a situation you have to make your yeah. choices yeah. and
0: it's that 80 roll <laughs> Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So it's complicated. And do you still have
0: horses? I don't not right now okay <laughs> I can't wait to get my horses back but yeah between the business and the baby and yeah it's just it's gonna take me a little bit of time to get back into that so but I will I will definitely yeah. have my horses it just may take me another year or two are
1: bison like cattle where you literally herd them like will you be like a cowgirl on your horse herding your
0: thousands of bison one night? I know right you 30. could and <laughs> they do that out west they do yeah. but there's really no need for us to do that I don't have enough bison to make that worth my time okay. that the bison really do well with us on the ground just walking behind them and just gently coaxing them to another position usually for us okay especially because we don't have thousands or hundreds of acres once bison start running game over like especially in our small spaces like that's when they start going through fences and they get all freaked out and then you're stressing them out. And so it's not worth it really for me to herd bison on horseback. What I see being able to do on horses specifically with bison is especially because I'd love to have like big, like Clydesdales. I fell in love with those big Percherons and the warm bloods and stuff. So you'd be up nice and high is to be able to get into a pasture and still be at a safe distance and be able to see over them. Yeah. In a quiet manner, because again, the bison don't love four wheelers or tractors or, you know, they just, they don't want you driving through them with like the machinery and stuff. So the horse lends itself to a quieter approach. And that's what I would use the horses specifically for, as well as if a bison does get out, like I said, we're at the top of a mountain and there's a lot of places a four-wheeler can't go. And so in the past, I've had to like go, you know, trudging through the briars and the woods to go grab a calf who's down in some ravine somewhere. I love horses too, just because they're like big dogs. I feel like as a kid, Mm -hmm. when I had horses, I wanted them to come inside and like stay in my room. And so I just love the relationship you have with (laughs) a horse. They're an amazing animal. So, and they taught me a lot as a teenager. And I appreciate that. And I would love to be able to do that with my own kiddos.
1: Yes.
0: So I wanted to ask you, is that dangerous?
2: I mean, I'm sure there is danger, but how do you keep yourself safe? Those are big animals. Yeah. Do you just keep a
0: distance or did, would they
2: turn yeah. and run towards you? Or They are
0: a dangerous animal. They're only semi-domesticated. And that's why they're hard to raise sometimes. It's because if they do get out of a fence, you can't go put a halter on them. You know, a calf, if that gets out, They're small, not a big deal. But if my big bull gets out, there's a finesse to that because you don't want them to come at you, but you also don't want them to run away. So there's definitely usually about a 13 foot space that they appreciate. So I can be in the pasture, not a problem. 13 feet, they'll stand there, hang out. You can wave at them, not a problem. If you approach beyond 13 feet, their preference first and foremost is to run away. So they'll retreat. If they can't retreat, that's when they will come at you. And sometimes you don't realize when that's happened, when that switch has happened, they feel like oh. they can't retreat because sometimes they feel like they can't retreat because there's just another animal right there and they don't like that animal and they don't get along well. So that's when they come at you and they'll come at you quick and quick, very, very athletic. So yeah. I've jumped a number of fences <laughs> because I got a little bit too close and then one of them decided that they were going to come at me. So I've learned my lesson a few times. But the other thing that we do occasionally do is our animals are all grass fed and finished but they do get grain on occasion just to move pastures and just so they know what it is. If I need to get them in certain paddocks and things like that. And then if they get out, right. So most of the time, if they get out, I can put grain in a bucket and shake a bucket and they'll come right to me, but you got to be ready because if they come to you, <laughs> they've got horns and everything. Right. So you got to yeah. like start moving so that they follow you into a gate or something. So I have a few of them that are nice and you could put grain out there and they'll eat grain out of your hand. You know, I do have a few of them that definitely do that, but that's not the general rule of thumb. And so that's where you have to be very careful. And I've especially found interestingly enough as a new mom I'll put my baby on my back and go in the pasture again, right? For like a pasture walk and just to kind of like look at the herd or something, but I'll be inside the fence. My females do not appreciate me with a baby on my back. And I do not do that anymore. I've been charged multiple times before even reaching that 13 to 15 foot. I will, and females that will eat out of my hand. You know what I mean? I'll go in there with the baby on my back. They must think that He's probably back there doing a bunch of crazy stuff. They don't like it. They don't know what it is. They don't appreciate that. And I have had multiple females charge me with my baby on my back.
1: That's so interesting.
2: Wow. What does that say about the workings of nature there? That's so interesting. Right?
1: That's crazy.
2: So do you breed them so you get to know the babies and stuff? Yeah. Is there a way to handle them from a very young age so that they're more tame and approachable when they're big like that?
0: They're just wild animals. Yeah. They're really just a wild animal, but occasionally you'll have a calf that the mom just didn't do a good job with, or they couldn't nurse well, or it's a brand new mom or something. And you have to bottle feed that calf. Uh Then you have a calf that acts a lot like a dog and they'll hang out on your front porch, whatever. But eventually they get very, very big. We have not had to do this before. We've been fortunate enough, but I have some friends in the business who have done it many, many years have a bottle calf and they can go up and scratch their face or scratch their butt. And they're really, really sweet. Wow. Occasionally though, the bulls will turn on you. So you have to be careful because there's a hierarchy there. Right. And so if you bottle feed them, then they think you're part of your hierarchy. And when they become Mm. mature to mate, sometimes they have an issue where they'll turn on their handler so it's tough. I mean, at the end of the day, they're just, they're a wild animal. And, you know, people are like, yeah, can't you just, you know, have one as a pet? And they usually don't do well yeah. as a pet. Occasionally you'll get one that does okay, but usually they're just a wild animal. What do they weigh? Like a couple thousand pounds? I mean, how big are they in full grown? So the average weight is about a thousand to 1200 pounds. And then that's most of the okay. females. And then like my big breeder bull, you know, my bulls will push 2000 plus pounds. So- That's a lot of animals coming out, yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow, Yeah, and like their heads paired to like cows. They're really lean on the backside. But, I mean, they just have these huge, massive heads. I mean, that head is like the front end of an SUV. You know, it's just, it's huge.
2: Is this the same thing as the American buffalo? Is it the same animal or is it a different So yeah, so Buffalo
0: is um, just the nickname for bison. And there's lots of different stories in regards to like how they got that name. I guess the story that I like or I go with typically is when the French came over they were used to seeing the Cape buffalo out in Africa and the term for that was le buff and so they saw the bison and just thought it was the you know North American version of the water buffalo and so they just used that same term yeah. so but I know some people in French say le buff was also the term for beef too so I feel like that could be a, interesting a little watered down but that is the story that are in a couple of those books that you can purchase you know about like the native buffalo and things like that it was just a term Originally, because they thought they were something different, but they're actually their own species. But bison is the actual word. Bison is the actual species name. Did they almost go extinct? We did, yeah. Homesteading and everything? They did because the early settlers, yeah, they were great about meat, but they were basically like a giant deer. And so when they were trying to inhabit out west and grow a bunch of stuff and have their cows and their horses, and bison do not play nice with cows or horses, and you can imagine they go through fences pretty easily. And so they were just kind of a nuisance to the settlers, which is unfortunate because they completely decimated the population because they really thought that they were just a a pain in the butt and not really Mm -hmm. worth a whole lot. Yeah, it was a lot of meat on them, but they were raising their own meat. And so they didn't realize how much they were wasting. I mean, it was a huge catastrophe and Mm -hmm. they went way too far with it. But it's one of the best regeneration stories, though, of North America in regards to what these animals are capable of. Because they're back. How they kept the prairies originally looking like the prairie. That's why the prairie is what it was and what they're trying to get it back to is because of the bison and how they would graze. The way that the bison graze is what everybody tries to mimic in regenerative agriculture. But they were the original story. That's so cool.
2: That is so interesting. But anyway, what does the good dirt mean to you, literally or metaphorically?
0: I feel like it's interesting because it's definitely both, but... When you say good dirt to me, I guess a memory of a smell comes to mind, you know, like when you put your hands into really dark, deep dirt and you can smell the earth underneath it. It kind of brings me back to my days of having horses and stuff and just that good organic smell of everything working together. And when you dig deep, it's the good stuff. That's where that good yeah. stuff is. And you got to take the time in the and the effort and not be afraid to get a little dirty to get into the good dirt.
1: I love that. Is there anything else that you want to leave with our audience or anything about your business or Buffalo or I guess Bison or the life of a, you're the prime (laughs) example of a lady farmer.
0: So honestly, ladies, I think you guys really hit on most of it. It's just really is okay trying to get, you know, the small farmer story out there and recognizing that I feel like us as just a community and a population and a nation, we just need to understand where our food comes from and just be honest about it. And that's really what I want people to know. Yeah.
1: And I also want to remind everyone listening, you started in 2017. Is
0: that right?
1: Officially? That's
0: incredible.
1: Mm -hmm. You've done so much in such a short amount of time. So that's really amazing to me too.
0: Yeah, it's been wild. Let me tell you. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and we often hear this. We talk to people practicing regenerative methods and trying to get projects like this going. And when you work with nature, the results are quicker than you might think. We hear that over and over again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's allowing for that is the hard part because nowadays most of us yes. don't allow for that time that it would take, but <laughs> it is it, it ends up being truly abundant. You know, on the back side, you just kinda wait for it a little bit. So and that's been hard for me to do. That's been really tough.
2: Yeah. And the power of observation, like we were talking about in the beginning. And so we've come yeah. full circle. <laughs> so anyway.
1: Well, thank you so much, Liz. This has been a delight. Yes. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks, ladies. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. We hope that you enjoyed this episode with Liz. I certainly learned a lot, and I can't wait to go visit her. Bison farm sounds so beautiful, and bison are truly amazing creatures. Yeah, I am looking forward to having a bison burger in the near future. Oh yeah, that sounds good too. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, please check out our virtual Soul Living Retreat. We'd love to have you in the almanac as well. Your membership there really helps us keep the show going. We appreciate it so much. And thank you for being here. We'll see you next week on The Good Dirt. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next week.
0: you like listening to the good dirt? I hope
1: you do because you're here listening to it. And are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast? Well, We're so excited to offer the Almanac. It's our private, slow living community network where we share workshops, activities, articles, essays, recipes, and so much more that align with our community's sustainable, slow, seasonal way of living. As a
2: member, you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings. Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow living enthusiasts as well as almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round. Numerous resources and more, and
1: discounted Lady Farmer events, including... The slow living retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac For three months free, if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com/slash community.